Let's talk about talk, it. Talk, talk, talk. Let's go deep. We all have something to share. No share with Dr. Dave. A game-changing framework for evaluating what it means to create value. Deliver value. Happy contributing people. Satisfied customers. Thriving business. Value is one of those concepts everyone thinks they understand until the moment they must describe it to someone else. Deliver Value is essential reading for every business owner, executive, manager, entrepreneur, and anyone who cares about the future of work. What are you waiting for? Get your copy of Deliver Value book right now on Amazon.com. Get your free chapters of Deliver Value book right now on DeliverValueBook.com. That's DeliverValueBook.com. Hey, we have like Kevin, who's um, a principal at Interaction Agility, an enterprise coach. He's also a senior coach and program lead and trainer at Adventure with Agile Enterprise Coaching Track. Um, we, this guy has been invited to speak at international, region, regional, and local conferences. Uh, and and he's been a guest on Agile Uprising and InfoQ and a bunch of other cool places. So um, you know we're just so excited to have Kevin today to bring us this wonderful message that organizational change is an individual choice and giving us that flexibility and that voice. But um, you know before we jump in there, I want to just tell you guys something too is that um, to give you an opportunity and and I. And I'm going to drop this in the chat. You know, if, if you wanted to um, submit a 10-minute lightning talk for Agile for Humanity, our conference, go ahead. I just dropped the link there um, as well. And lightning talks are just short 10-minute conversation about anything that you choose and you're passionate about and, and we accept. And then here's if you want to actually get some tickets to the event. Here it is, you know, coming up February next year. So with that, Kevin, I'm going to go off camera so that you can be center stage because we want it to be all about you, bro. Is that cool? That's totally fine. All right. Um, all right. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, welcome to my home. <laughs> I'm in my dining room. Uh, my kitchen is right there and my son and his girlfriend are uh, making. I don't know. What are you guys making? Pretzels. They're making pretzels. So um, uh, appreciate, enjoy the background noise. <laughs> it's a weekend uh, working at home in the days of COVID. So um, uh, perfect. Let's jump on in. So uh, the, the talk um, is, uh, I have a few ideas to share with you. Um, before uh, with the recording started, if you've, you've heard this, so the, the, the context for this particular talk was that a, a company uh, in uh, Europe actually was re had reorganized and they'd created kind of a new software development um, group for embedded software on, on hardware. And there was some concern that because this new group was being created from combining several other groups, that that new group would not be able to form a, an identity big enough and strong enough to um, to have to invite those folks in and give them something to belong to besides um, their prior kind of identity. And I really hope that mixer isn't coming through. Is there a bunch of background noise right now? Can someone give me a 
Any feedback on that? I'm going to assume no. You're good. Okay, cool. Thank you. I do have another headset. If if uh, if it gets too loud, just let me know. So um, so that was sort of the the overall context of the the question they had uh, for me is how might we um, bring people together for an offsite? Uh, they they all did get to come together in a room, and I was sort of this talking head on a video screen on the wall. It was a little weird. Uh, and give them some ideas about how do we balance what we're looking for as individuals in the context of organizations as those organizations change. And that the things that we liked, that we were successful at, that allowed us to be effective might be changing out from under us and might be changing out from around us. And what do we do about that? And how do we help others who might be experiencing that? And so while organizational change and collaboration is of course a collective activity, there's this interesting paradox that it is also rooted in individual agency and choice and that people, if they don't choose to contribute meaningfully of their own free will, um, we are less likely to achieve the things that we're setting out to achieve together. So that's kind of the framing of, of where this topic came from. Um, again, I'll give you a few ideas. Um, I don't have, I think the, the entire deck has content slides, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven slides. <laughs> so there'll be a bit of me talking, but I'm really, if this, this particular uh, talk as many of my talks do is, is conversational. And so ask questions, come off mute. Um, you don't have to come on video if you don't want to, um, but you can, uh, or throw them in the chat. I'll be monitoring that as well. And uh, yeah, if there's anything you wanna contribute or, or say something you wanna explore deeper, um, there's plenty of room for that kind of emergent exploratory stuff. So um, with all of that, let's, uh, let's jump in to the presentation. And um, so we're trying to get you all back here. There we go. Okay, so um, how do we do this? You know, you can go kind of too far either way. You can you can um, either only have a bunch of individuals operating as individuals, or you can lose the individual altogether and only have a collective and my assertion is that there's a harmony somewhere in the middle. And our job is to see, see if we can find that harmony and then really stay in it. So there's a little bit more about me. Um, I live up in Maine where the weather is trying to decide what it's doing. We had a big, big rainstorm last night and now it's getting sunny out there and, and it's pretty humid. Um, these days I consider myself a leadership wayfinder and that enables leaders to navigate complex environments. Sometimes that's individual leadership development, like uh, coaching individual senior leaders, doing things like 360 degree assessments, like leadership ability assessments. Um, other times it's working with teams, impact teams, like a software development team to become more effective, communicate better. Sometimes it's working at an organizational scale, program levels uh, and higher to help those organizations make better decisions, really. Um, 
been doing this a long time. And uh, yeah, so any questions people have about that, we can can hear from, or I'm gonna make sure we have the chat somewhere here. And we'll just move on into the content. So one of the questions that I like to look at is how big and little things fit together or not. And my assertion is that the world has become fundamentally more complex, uh, more interconnected, more interdependent. Things change at a higher uh, rate. Uh, there's more danger. Uh, if anyone who's been in a product organization long enough, I'm sure has felt some of that, some of that risk. And um, there's also a lot more opportunities in all of that all of that sort of dynamic conditions, that dynamic context uh, is both full of things that can, uh, pitfalls that we can fall into and also Recording and give us new, uh, new opportunities. Hi Shaz, welcome, we just got started. Um, so what about that? Have people heard about the the parable of the blind men and the elephant? Is that something that anyone's heard of? Uh, I'm going to assume we haven't heard of it, so I'll just talk about it real briefly. Um, Jody says yes. Rebecca says yes. So if you haven't heard, Dr. Dave says yes of this parable. Um, I the origin that I understand it is that it's an ancient uh, Hindu or Hindi uh, parable. And it goes something like this. Uh, a king, an ancient Indian king, thought it would be a fun joke to have six blind people who had never experienced an elephant um, be positioned around an elephant and describe, to figure out what it is and, and agree what it was. And so depending on which part of the elephant each individual was kind of experiencing with their hands, uh, they were convinced that their experience was everybody else's experience. And so the person at the tail said something like, it's a rope. And the person kind of at a leg said, it's a tree. And the person at the tusk said, it's a, it's a kind of a spear. And the person at the trunk said, it's kind of like a weird snake. And the person at the ear said, it's a great sheet of leather. And, you know, the person at the side said, it's a wall. And in the fable, the argument between these people so convinced that their local experience was what everybody else was having got so fierce that they literally came to blows and started fighting one another um, rather than considering maybe all of these localized experiences fit into something that's bigger. And what if that could be true? And so how many of us get involved in or are involved in organizations where we have these kind of local experiences and we're not taking the time to ask, how might this fit into a larger thing? Or even on a scrum team where you know maybe a tester says it's this way and a developer says it's this way and a UX person says it's this way. And, and what if we say, what about all that? How might we say yes to all of that? How might it all fit together into something bigger? 
And that's one of those ways that we can start considering harmonizing an individual local perspective and a larger global perspective. What about that conversation? So that's one idea um, that we can use to help people decide or opt into or extend invitations to a larger conversational context around change. And again, if you have um, not heard of some of these stories or examples, uh, put them in your pocket and take them with you. They're, they're pretty neat, um, very effective. And again, if you have any questions or stories you wanna share about any of this stuff at any point, um, definitely uh, jump in on the chat or, or just interrupt me. I'm happy to not wait till the end of the talk to take questions. One of the ways that I've used this, I actually use this particular, um, this, this parable quite a bit. I don't necessarily tell the whole story of it, though I do use the underlying idea of how do we, how do we consider that there's maybe a, a larger whole um, that all needs to work to be effective. Uh, oftentimes in my work, especially at, at a, more of an enterprise level, I'm working across boundaries in the organization. And there's this really interesting belief that like the business is different from IT, right? Or or the, the people solving the problem, the solution space is different from the opportunity space. And so helping people to get beyond that belief and start talking as if we're in the same boat. Uh, I like to draw a boat with one end underwater and one end above the water. And there's there's a hole in the boat and it's underwater and there's one person <clears throat> underwater and one person above the water. And I asked the room, what's the person above the water line saying? And they don't usually know because they don't have told them yet. And I say, um, that person's saying, I'm sure glad the hole's not at my end. And uh, we see that, I see a lot of that behavior and usually it elicits a lot of laughter because people are like, yeah, we, we do that. Um, so how do we get beyond that? All right, another, uh, another idea about how big and little things fit or not is a thing called the Stonecutter's Parable. Um, I first read this in Stephen Covey's original book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, and uh, the, the Stonecutter's Parable is a way to, how, to, to make sense of what are we doing? and kind of how wide and how purposeful can even the most mundane task become. And so the Stonecutter's parable goes something like this. There's a traveler walking down the road and he comes to somebody on the side of the road with a hammer and a chisel and a block of stone and they're you know hammering their chisel and breaking pieces of rock off. And the traveler asks this person, um, excuse me, you may ask what you're doing. And they says, well, isn't it obvious what I'm doing? And I'm a stonecutter, I'm cutting this piece of stone. It's like, oh, cool. Well, thank you. And so the traveler continues on and short time later comes to another uh, person doing the exact same task. And he says, there, this traveler asks this person, what are you doing? And this person gives a different answer, which is, uh, I'm building part of a wall. Hmm, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing and, and continues on. 
short time later, it comes to a third person doing the exact same task and asks, you know, excuse me, and ask what you're doing. And this person answers, I'm building a space for people to gather and celebrate and worship. Which of those people do you think has a bigger sense of purpose about that same task? And how often when we ask people in sort of the professional sphere, you know, kind of what are you doing? What's your job? What's your role? They say, uh, I do this thing. And they, they are not considering uh, the idea of what's this organization trying to accomplish for itself, which I would call, I use Melissa Perry's language around that, that's an outcome. Or if you take it one step further beyond that, to the customers or the people that you serve, the impacts that your work creates in their lives. And what about that? And there's a profound amount of leadership to be learned about starting with that outermost, what is the biggest thing that we're attempting to do together? And how do all of these smaller things kind of fit into that bigger idea? And it's important to, to understand this is, I'm not suggesting that this is kind of like a reductionist or a mechanical model. It's a fractal model. It's that patterns repeat independent of scale, but they look slightly different as we go along. So like I live in Maine uh, and the, the coast of Maine is very rocky and kind of, um, it's, it, it was heavily glaciated up here in the last ice age. And so there's lots of pockets and coves and a lot of rocks, some sandy beaches, a lot of islands. And so the answer to the question, how long is the coastline of Maine varies greatly depending on, well, where are we looking at it from? Are we looking at it from space view, crawling around, measuring every rock and grain of sand? Regardless, those patterns that make up the coast of Maine repeat independent of scale. The patterns in uh, our like circulatory systems repeat in the branching structure and root structure of trees. The fluid dynamics of bubbles exhibit and you can observe them like in your sink. I recently watched a, an animation of the ozone layer over time and it had the same kind of surface tension dynamics. And we know that the largest observable physical structures in the known universe, galactic superclusters, uh, also are organized along kind of what would be a cluster of bubbles with all of the visible matter on the surface of the bubbles and vast, vast empty space between them, just like the inside of a bubble. So it's really interesting, these, this idea that, that these patterns repeat independent of scale, that we can hook our narratives into different uh, parts of that scale and we can both find identities for ourselves and for other people by sharing those narratives together and helping people get beyond sort of again those localized differences by creating a, a bigger 
picture, a bigger conversation of, of larger identity to belong to. I think that's really important in organizations. And I think it's one of the most fundamental things that really powerful leaders will do is just tell those stories over and over and over again about why are we doing what we're doing? Who are we doing it for? Who are we not doing it for? That's really important stuff. So I'm going to pause there and just kind of open it up. Any thoughts, questions uh, so far? About any of these ideas that sort of interplay between local perspective, global perspective, how things fit together or not, um, the role of leadership in that, how might you as a leader navigate that? What about the resistors? Um, so I like the coactive coaching definition of resistance or resistors, which is a, see if I can get, I always get complaints and resistance confused. And resistance, I, if I get it right, it's one of these two things and it's, they're both really good ideas regardless. <laughs> uh, one idea is it is a, an unstated request or a poorly stated request, a poorly worded or a poorly articulated request. Alternatively, it could be a value that is perceived to be uh, not respected. And so, for example, a lot of organizations, when they first adopt more agile ways of working, um, they, they give perhaps a little bit too much autonomy to teams, to scrum teams. They haven't figured out enabling constraints yet. And we can talk about that if that's interesting. And so these, so teams for the first time often in their careers get the ability to self-organize and kind of make some, have some own decision rights about their own work. And oftentimes that doesn't go so well because there, again, there aren't the appropriate guardrails put in place. And so as it evolves in an unhelpful way, then, then managers try to reimpose and take that control away and people resist that. And the, the value that I believe in that, that specific example that is being uh, trampled on a little bit is that, that sort of autonomy, that self, uh, self-determination, shall we say, the ability to make your own decisions. So um, resistors, uh, and I'm happy to, uh, to post the deck, by the way, um, Jody, so you can just take the deck and grab screenshots of it. Um, I like to understand with resistors, um, what's, what's going on there? And is that something that we can have a conversation about? Or are, are they so resistant that they're not even interested or willing to have a conversation about it? Um, let's, so let's let's I'm just going to inject here. So let's yeah. talk about um, resistors in, in the context of, of them being passive aggressive. OK, which is a fun conversation to have. Right. Everyone is yeah. shaking their head. Yes. And, and behind the scenes, they're taking you somewhere else. So what yeah. about that context? 
Yeah. So um, again, what about that? Uh, I want to know. So one of the things that, that I'm, I want to express are the values of transparency and the Kanban practice of making policies explicit. And so I'm less inclined to engage with passive aggressive behavior if I can find a way around it by having a, a conversation, usually a private conversation with that individual and really kind of hear them out. Like what, what's going on for you? Um, to what Joel says, sometimes resistors have a key piece of information that is highly relevant. Absolutely. And they often are, their behavior is passive aggressive because they either don't have the language to express that piece of information. Um, they don't feel safe. Uh, they've tried in the past to um, provide that information and it has not been heard. Um, or yeah, they, they've been mistreated um, by the system. You know, things have been weaponized against them in the past. So there's all kinds of contextual stuff that can be driving that behavior and, and kind of masking the, the contribution underneath it. And so, and, and I will also say that in a, in a very small, and I mean really small slice, um, people are just jerks <laughs> and their intent is not good. Though, or, or they're so intent on self-preservation and control that nothing else matters. They can't even begin to conceptualize that there's a collective. They're only in it as an individual and they're only in it for individual gain. And there's, I, I haven't had a lot of success collaborating with, with folks that um, believe those things are true. And so I, I try to figure out very quickly, is that kind of where they're operating from? And if so, how do I get away from this person and go work with other people? Um, so again, one of the things like, yeah, I, I like to have a conversation with them usually privately, that's very open and just say, hey, you know, what's going on for you? Um, how is it for you to be a part of this change? Like what's, what's going on? I might name some of the behaviors I've seen uh, in a very ob observational, not evaluative uh, way. Like, hey, I noticed in the meeting uh, that you were very, very quiet. And then right at the very end, you kind of made this cutting uh, remark uh, or a remark that I interpreted is, is really cutting. And I'm kind of curious what's about that. Uh, let me give you a really concrete example. I just facilitated a retrospective a few weeks ago for a group. Um, this is at a, the, the group is ostensibly a, a help desk. Um, though they've been doing a lot more than that. There's like four people on this, in this team. And in December, a major reorganization of this part of the uh, sort of group was announced that between retirements and then people uh, quitting, they lost about 100 years of institutional knowledge in a matter of months as four or five very, very senior people just either retired or opted out and took it on their job. And so the people that are left are literally trying to hold this place together. And they're just kind of wearing whatever hats they need to wear and doing whatever needs to be done and constantly discovering things that nobody told them when they left were needed that, you know, people call and say, well, what's going on with this thing? And they're like, we didn't even know that was a thing. And so they have to go figure that out. 
And so at their retrospective, um, many of them were using a, a very, what I interpreted as kind of cutting sarcasm and, and would respond to each other in a, in a, a way that had an edge to it that I couldn't read. And my read on it was, this is not entirely productive. And so I asked them about it. I said, you know, and, and you know, they would kind of laugh. But I could also see that people would kind of withdraw who that humor was pointed at. And so one of the things I said, just kind of as calmly and as neutrally as I could, I said something along the lines of humor is really important. And humor and jokes can be a way that brings us closer together and that helps us deal with really hard situations. And humor can also be a way that we say things to each other that we don't know otherwise how to say. And it can cut pretty deep. And I'm not sure which is going on here right now. I'm wondering if you have anything to say about that. And the group got really quiet. They didn't really have anything to say about it, but it also stopped. And the tone of their conversation switched completely from one of what I would interpret as kind of cutting to much softer uh, kind of openness and curiosity. It's not that they didn't still have very candid conversations. It, it, it's just that the, that undertone of sarcasm went away and the conversation became uh, more productive. Um, the questions that I asked, I, I stated something around, you know, a contextual assertion of humor can bring us together. It can be a really um, powerful way to release stress. It can be really um, wonderful way to enjoy each other's company and, and even make light of things. And it can also be used to say things that we don't otherwise know how to say. And thus it can become, um, can hurt. Which do you think you're using? Or which one feels more accurate for you today? Is what I asked them. And again, that's, you know, that's stepping out into a, a bigger kind of conversation. The, the conversation, you know, as David White says, you know, the, the real conversation. Uh, that was the part of the conversation we we're there to have as part of a retrospective. All right, so we'll we'll kind of continue to pull on this idea of of that that tension, the paradox of you know big things and smaller things, and and what do we wish to belong to, and and what do we not want to belong to, and how as leaders might we foster that with people. All right, I'm a big fan of complexity. Uh, Kinevin, the Kinevin framework is a part of all of my workshops. I I insist on that. Um, I love it. I've been studying it for a lot of years now and still learning about it. And there's a few things that happen uh, when we're in complex contexts. And some of those are a little bit counterintuitive and, 
And so I want to talk about those a little bit. The big one is complex problems cannot be solved by any individual. Let's let that sink in for a moment because that's an assertion that I'm going to make. It's a pretty powerful assertion that a, a complex problem cannot be solved by any one kind of heroic person. It needs uh, multiple perspectives. It needs multiple inputs and it needs multiple people to figure out together how do we work? It's kind of like more of a team thing than an individual thing. And so if that's true, there's some implications there. Like this image on the left, that the best ideas emerge from several inputs, several people's inputs, right? That construct of an elephant was trying to emerge from the different perspectives of the different blind people around it that were experiencing it, right? The, the construct of a, a building to gather and celebrate in is realized through the efforts of lots of different people. Like I'm putting up a building by myself. It's a very small building and it's still like, it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, and, and I will say, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. I'm not a professional carpenter builder by any means. And uh, you can tell <laughs> that building would benefit a lot from, from some collaboration with people who, who know uh, a little more specifically how to do some of these things. So that's the idea uh, of the, this idea that, that the best ideas come emerge through the conversations and kind of the smithing uh, of, of different ideas to, to find the best parts of them and, and put them together. And if that's true, do we have the kind of relationships and communication skills to enable that and facilitate that? So that's a, that's a big question. How do we use language and how do we understand language and how do we understand how people like to learn and how people like to communicate, and how people like to participate in teams. And um, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff in there just about are just pure humanity that has nothing to do with um, what we're doing together um, as much as how we're doing it and who we are as we do it. That's why good scrum teams retrospect what it's like to be on this team. And how, how is it that we do our work together? So there's, that's one idea. Another idea, uh, the middle kind of pictures of experimentation and with complex contexts, time is always an element. They, they don't stay static. Uh, they're, they're continuously evolving um, based on input. The, the most complex systems, those that involve people, the people themselves then co-evolve in response to this, the context changing. So as an organization changes, that changes the people, the people then change the organization, the organization changes the people, and you get this very interesting co-evolutionary uh, process. Logan, you just came off mute, so I just wanted to jump in, get ready to jump in. Maybe, maybe not. All right. Uh, so if that's true, if the landscape is continuously kind of changing around us and we're changing in some ways with it how do we 
get feedback about that? How do we sense make uh, and probe about things changing? How do we know, like I worked at a long time ago at a social media company. When I started that organization, they were one of the top providers on the planet of private label social networks. It was a very lucrative business. That was in 2006, late 2006, uh, early 2007. In summer of 2007, this little thing out of Harvard stopped being about college students knowing each other and opened up to the public. And that little thing is called Facebook. And Facebook emerging destroyed our entire business model. Put it bluntly. Uh, and so we got pretty fast feedback about that because um, no one renewed their contracts with us. And we had to pivot like crazy to even have a business after that. So that's pretty, pretty severe disruption. Um, there are other things that you can, you can probe and watch as far as adoption. You know, like if you're in a product context and the goals of your product are starting to maybe not be met. So people usage is beginning to decline. Uh, adoption is flattening or dropping. Uh, features are not being used at the same rate they were being used. If you monitor chatter on social channels, people are talking about your product. Right? Like, I don't know, before Instagram, there was a, an app called Hipstamatic. I don't know if anyone remembers Hipstamatic. Um, it was like the first app for iPhone that applied filters uh, onto your photos. And so you could put all, like, you could make your photos look like vintage kind of photographs and it was super kind of fun, super cool. Um, and it was like this really short-lived blip in the ecosystem. Peloton is the current example. Uh, when COVID hit, Peloton stock went through the roof because nobody could go to gyms. So everyone bought Pelotons. We have one in our living room. And Peloton went crazy, right? Their revenues went up, went through the roof. Um, they looked like they were gonna be an incredibly successful company. And for a couple of years they were. And suddenly as that context has shifted and gyms are reopen again and people are going back to them, that home exercise equipment market is not like it was in the summer of 2020. What are they gonna do about that? I don't think they know what they're gonna do about that. We're seeing some really interesting stuff right now with Twitter. Um, who knows what the end game of that's gonna be. My, my point with this particular idea though is experiment to, to be actively exploring those things, to be probing those things, to be getting information about those things, to have active feedback loops that are operating well, so you have ways to discern between noise and signal the best you can. And when you can't, then you can run an experiment to, to pull them apart or to check an assumption. So the last or the third thing about uh, complexity's natural law is another aspect of this kind of time thing, which is that things evolve. And I think I already mentioned that a little bit, so I won't drive on this one very hard, but over time, things change. 
And when we make bets and our companies and organizations make bets that things are not going to change, that sets us up to have profound risk at some future date. We just don't know when. So how might we, uh, as we're looking at organizational change, as we're looking at our individual roles or other individuals' roles in organizational change, look at how well do we share ideas and collaborate and, and look for those ideas that emerge from conversations between many people? How might we more actively learn and experiment to gain information about the world and the current kind of version or point in time of our world? And how might we explicitly make room in our processes, in the ways we organize for things to evolve, including the people, right? Like everything's evolving all the time. The market's evolving, customer expectations are evolving, technology's evolving, uh, employee expectations are evolving, things as seemingly mundane as health insurance costs, those are evolving. Things like uh, global pandemics are forcing evolution in other ways. What about all of that? How do we become more responsive? So um, there's a question, how, so noise and signal. Can I elaborate on noise versus signal? We live in a world where we are bombarded by constant noise. Any advice on how to determine which information to focus on? Well, the kicker is um, we don't always know. And so there's a couple of things to consider. Um, I think the big one is context first. And, and is the, the context something that we are kind of actively probing into? Or is the context something that we are more observing and listening to? So let me give you a couple of examples to maybe clarify that. Several years ago, I was invited by a software team at an insurance company to help them kind of realign. They just kind of completed a pretty big deliverable. And now they were sort of closing that piece of work off and opening up this brand new piece of work. And the brand new piece of work was a pretty cool uh, invitation from their leadership. This is a web team. And this particular insurance company had an online quoting process where you could, if you didn't have a policy with them, you could come to their website you could enter in uh, a bunch of information that they would need to create a quote for you, and then they would give you a quote. And if you wanted to buy that uh, product, it gave you a means to contact an agent, and they would convert that into uh, what they call a bind, right? A binding policy. So that's the idea. Unfortunately, <laughs> what they could tell was of the people who started that online quoting process, most of them did not finish. And because they're in the business of, of selling binding policies, which is where the customer actually becomes a customer and gets some value and the company gets revenue, um, that doesn't get satisfied if people don't complete a quote. And so nobody knew why people weren't completing quotes. They just knew they weren't. And so this team had been tasked with the, the objective of get that completion rate up, 
We don't know what you need to do. We don't even know if it's possible, but we would like you to give it a shot and see what you can do. So that's the probe. That's sort of the context is, is how do we learn about this particular uh, I, uh, sort of a problem and what information do we already have available that could inform what we do next? <laughs> and so I asked them, well, what do you, what do you think today? And they gave me several different ideas, like maybe our navigation sucks, maybe um, there's too many steps, maybe um, the page needs to be refactored, like, you know, all these pretty big changes. And I said, okay, how hard are any of those changes and based on what? And basically those, they were all pretty big changes and they're based on guess. And so I suggested a different attack which is more of a customer focused one. And I said, so what do you know about who's coming to this quoting portal? Because not everybody is, right? Not all of your prospects are coming to this web page. only probably a very small amount are. What about them? And they had a really good BA, kind of BA slash product owner. And she piped right in and she said, you know, we know that people are coming to this uh, site uh, based on market research um, on kind of three personas. Um, some people are coming to get a quote based on price. Some people are coming to get a quote based on coverage. And some people are coming to get a quote, and it's really important to them, um, what they call it serviceability, what's in the policy. And so I said, okay, what if you created a new entry point into your existing quoting process and you made no changes to it? And they were, I would like a quote based on price. I would like a quote based on coverage. And I would like a quote based on serviceability. And you can make those buttons, you can make them links, you can make them whatever you want, but they all link to the same place and you measure the click-throughs on each of them. And then you see, did that change the click, the completion rate for those quotes? And so they deployed that experiment. It took them like a couple of hours to put it together and they let it run for a couple of weeks. And they found that people, like 80% of the people that clicked, clicked on the buy price. So you tell me, is that signal or is that noise, right? That data is very high grade signal. And they were able to iterate on that experiment a couple more times to refine even tighter who was really coming through this pipeline. And through that evolutionary process and experimentation, they got the data to say, people want a quote through the sales channel based on low price, low coverage, and, and they're pretty low risk. And so they took that data to their underwriting department. They said, hey, can you issue us a policy that we could get to bind just based on these factors? And the underwriting group said, we've never done that before, but we don't see why not. And so this, for the first time, this particular insurance company was able to bind policies for new customers without needing an agent to be a part of that. And it doubled the revenue through that channel year over year. It was very, very good. Um, so anyways, that's one example of a very high signal, low noise uh, channel. And they were really intentionally deploying uh, experiments into it. Um, one that's maybe more observational comes from uh, the book Team of Teams by Stan McChrystal, which is the case study of 
the Joint Special Forces Command of the U.S. military, uh, literally transforming from a traditional command and control to a very networked, responsive organization. They had a daily call that was attended by, at its height, about 2,000 people. 2,000 people on a single call. And part of the reason that that call was so incredibly valuable was they never knew the the relevance of specific bits of intelligence that were popping up throughout their global network. And so that call, part of it was for people who had some, some piece of information that was very, very temporal, like we know the specific location of this particular individual, but we're not really sure who they are. Does anyone know if they're someone that we have an interest in either uh, talking to, arresting, or killing if we can't? Yeah, this is special forces going after terrorist organizations. And people move pretty fast. And so they would, in that forum, you know, if somebody had a piece of that information, they would present it to the group. And anyone else who knew anything about that could jump in and say, yeah, that's this so-and-so, or no, we don't know anything about them, or we do know something about them, we don't care. And so sometimes you don't know the difference between signal and noise. You just have a piece of information you don't know is it relevant to your context. And so you need to put it into the conversational space with other people who might. So it depends. What are you trying to solve for? How fast are things changing? How wide is your context? Um, those are some considerations. Does that help, Jody? Okay, cool. All right, so, so complexity is a thing. We should probably learn about it a little bit. Um, so how might we organize? Uh, one mission, this is another construct that comes out of um, Crystal's book, and there's a follow-up book called Simply One Mission. Um, which is sort of more of an operational manual about how do you uh, how do you articulate the one mission that your uh, organization is seeking to accomplish? Uh, if we don't have one mission and we have many missions, there's uh, possibly some problems there. All right, yeah, we can definitely leave some time for questions. This thing is is definitely gone on. Let me do this slide, then we'll we'll peel it out and, and go to. Uh, Q&A. So this idea of one mission, are all of your, if you were to, to draw diagrams of all these different teams and the members of the teams, is everybody pointed kind of more or less in the same way? Uh, or is there all kinds of chaos as people are paying attention to different things and valuing different things and behaving as if different things are important? To what degree do we understand the elephant? To what degree do we understand that we're building a building to celebrate and that, of course, the building is made up of walls. And, of course, walls are made up of stones and how those things fit together. Of course, an elephant is a large animal. Of course, it has trunk-like legs and a rope-like tail. How do all of those things, though, fit together into a whole? And what is the whole? And what do we call that? What is our purpose? How do we respond when there's no such thing as perfect knowledge in the world? Part of complexity is it is there's an inherent unknowability and more analysis and more experts don't help actually make it worse. So we, instead of uh, perfect knowledge, we were looking for a thing that Dave Stone calls coherence, right? Do we have enough information to have it makes enough sense that we can move in that direction? And what about that? And, and, and how does that tie to this idea of the, 
the prior slide of the ideas that emerge from conversation, experimentation, and evolution. And what are some patterns that tend to be effective? Now, this is maybe looking a little more familiar to agile people, things like organizing and value streams instead of functional silos, right? So that work can flow end to end without getting hung up in dependencies and queues and all kinds of stuff. How do we take an economic outlook? As Don Reinertsen says, one of my favorite quotes from his book, uh, Principles of Product Development Flow, you can ignore economics. Don't worry, economics won't ignore you. So take an economic outlook. That does not mean finance. That means understanding what's scarce, what's abundant, what's expiring, what's long-lived, and making better decisions together as a result of all of that. Scrum is a great way to organize, uh, to solve complex things, and help them to shift into a liminal space between complex things and complicated things in the Kinevin world, at least. Um, but we have to understand that's why we're practicing Scrum, right? It's not just to do a sprint. It's not just to do a standup. It's not just to have a thing called a product backlog. Those are all means to an end. What's the end? And have we talked about it? Do we know? So Scrum, this is an interesting distinction. Scrum is a delivery framework. It's a process. It's a thing you do. Kanban, the Kanban method, is something you apply to a process to make it better. Kanban is not something you do. And so when I hear people say, oh, they're a Kanban team, uh, that tells me they don't understand Kanban very well because they're operating some workflow on top of which they're trying to apply Kanban, usually to visualize that workflow. But that's just the beginning. Kanban goes way beyond visualizing your work. So um, those patterns can be really, really helpful as ways to facilitate this conversation between sort of the, the smaller things and the great bigger things and how do they fit together uh, in coherent ways to make it just better for us as individuals, better for our organizations and better for the people that we serve. So I'll stop there um, and open it up to questions. And uh, we've been going for a little while here. So what questions do you maybe have? I'll just stop the screen share so that we can. Always the point where I'm nervous. Do people have questions? Uh, can I say more about Kanban is applied to solving a problem? Sure. So um, Kanban is an improvement uh, strategy. The Kanban method is something that we apply to a process to improve it. Typically, those processes, those underlying processes, are some sort of a workflow that has states and and things move through those states. We can visualize that left to right to show the time. Um, the first thing that I want to know, any team that says we're a Kanban team is cool. What are you trying to improve? Or what is your source of dissatisfaction is a more Kanban-ish way to say it. Um, or what problem are you trying to solve or make better? What condition are you trying to make better? I have yet to find a team, honestly, that when I ask those questions, they have an answer to it. Usually they're like, we know things are, things are good. We're okay. And I go, well, um, I don't, I want to agree with you, <laughs> but I think that maybe we have 
a better, you know, we can, we can inquire into that. Like what's the nature of weight state? How long does it take things to get to wherever we really truly call them a, a win? Um, and are we satisfied with that? Or do things get hung up in the weight states? Are people constantly multitasking? You know, what about that? Is there, you know, we get things through really quickly and then they hit some state where they get validated and turns out they're actually not the right thing and thus generate a bunch of rework that causes more delay and churn. What about all that, right? So does that help, Dr. Dave? Is there any more, can you give me more specific maybe direction if not? No, no, I, I think that was great. I, I just, I did that just to make sure that for those of us, for those on the call who may not be familiar with Kanban, that, you know, we give a different shape to it in terms of them understanding how it's applied to solving yeah. some issues. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's, it's and, um, I love Kanban. I mean, I consider myself, if I had to hang my hat on any one of the sort of agile practices, I would probably hang it on a Kanban because it is so agnostic, because it is so, um, you can apply it to a value stream, you can apply it to your um, kind of scrum iterations, you can apply it to your discovery workflows, like how does your backlog evolve over time? Um, any of those things are great candidates for uh, Kanban to help you understand the reality of them and then help you make informed, coherent uh experiments to make them better no and, 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 yeah, so. and even just talking about you know scrum you know the underlying you know railway that supports scrum is kanban right yeah well yeah there's definitely like a left to right workflow and scrum doesn't have anything to tell you about that almost not like it doesn't even require you to use a task board that's not a artifact in the scrum guide um, but most teams have to figure, you know, learn very quickly that if they don't visualize their work, at least a really rudimentary level, they can't begin to track it. And so what about that? And how do we make that better? You mentioned a word, um, churn. Mm -hmm. So what happens, okay, so if you have Kanban and you have a specific goal or task or problem you're trying to solve, right? Mm -hmm. What happens when you solve it? Do you simply create a new one? Do you adopt? Can you walk us through a little more oh. what you're envisioning with the Kanban cycle? Like, Sure. So, um, so the, the first thing, so when, it, when an organization or a team is, when I'm engaging with them, a very common narrative is we're working really, really hard. Things seem to take a long time to get done. Um, there's things are not very well coordinated. Um, we're dropping balls. It's hard to get people uh, into a conversation because they're so busy. And, um, and nobody's really thrilled about this, but no one really knows what to do about it either. And so one of the first things I'll do is invite them to make their work visible. So that's the first problem. Um, how do you make your work visible so that you can all agree to what's actually happening? And the solution to that problem is some sort of a workflow management tool like, you know, I don't like Jira myself, but a lot of companies seem to like it a lot. Um, there's lots of others. I like Azure DevOps actually has become one of my favorite um, workflow visualization tools, it's, it's, which is, I never thought I'd say that, 
Um, certainly a few years ago, I wouldn't have said that, but these days it's gotten so powerful that I really, really like it. Um, there's a few things that it could do better, but all in all, it's, it's pretty awesome. So we can use Azure DevOps to visualize our workflows at multiple levels. So we can look at things that the teams are working on. We can look at the sort of the, if you call those user stories, if your user stories roll up to features, you can visualize your features. Your features might roll up to things called epics. You can visualize your epics. They all have different workflows. They all have different policies. And so once you visualize your work, usually people realize there's just a lot of it. <laughs> there's often so much of it that it's hard to even visualize it. And we spend so much time managing our board that it's just, it takes too, it's too hard. And so they say, "What we, we don't want to do this. And I, I totally hear you. What if it's too hard to manage your board, not because managing a board is hard, but because you have too much work in process? What if you had fewer things on your board? Would it still be hard to manage? And now they have their next kind of evolutionary problem to solve. How do we start reducing the amount of work and, that we have committed to? Um, so the thing that I use to, to teach people that these days, because it's kind of an abstract concept, uh, I use the metaphor of beer. I love beer. I love IPAs. I have a little beverage fridge and I have cans of IPA in there. And those cans of IPA go through a, a very interesting process to get to that fridge. And at every stage, you know, we can talk about optionality and we can talk about commitments. And for me, that beer is an option until the moment I open it. And when you open a can of beer, it fundamentally changes from something you might do to something you must do. You must either drink it or dump it out. You don't get to put that cat back in the bag. That genie doesn't go back in the bottle. You can't close it back up. You have a very limited amount of time before the beer goes flat and then spoils. And you don't get to, you know, and I drink fairly expensive New England IPAs. They're about four bucks a can. And so I'm not interested in opening them and then dumping them out. And so for a team that has too much work in process, I just go, it's like having, you know, like five or six beers open and people are continuing to hand you open beers or you're opening them yourself because you think that you get to, you, that, that you uh, score a point by having a beer open. And that's not how you score a point in most organizations. If you really look at the economics of it, you score a point by finishing one. And so if we start focusing on finishing instead of starting, that's a really good strategy to help eliminate and start throttling down the arrival rate of new work and the arrival rate of things that go from an option to a commitment. So then that would be the next kind of level of problem to solve with Kanban, balancing your arrivals and your departures. That is now called a stable system. Now you can begin improving it like uh, looking at wait state versus touch state. You can look at things like end-to-end -end lead times or cycle times. You can start seeing the emergence of constraints or bottlenecks, and you can begin to make uh, experiments around um, improving those bottlenecks or getting rid of them completely. Those are sort of examples of the kinds of problems that a, a serious Kanban um, organization will be looking to solve for themselves with Kanban, right? Kanban will make all of that visual and, and explicit, 
and then they can um, use that as the basis for their improvements. Cool. Um, <laughs> so check out uh, Dominica de Grand. So book recommendations. Uh, Lorraine asked for that. So if you have not um, seen uh, uh, Dominica de Grandis's book, um, Making Work Visible, I think it's called. Yeah, check that out. It's awesome. It's a really good book. Um, it's, it's probably the most single most accessible book about this stuff that I've seen. If you want something that's maybe a little more practitioner focused, um, like Agile Coachy-ish, check out Dan Vicanti's um, Actionable Agile Metrics for Predictability or When Will It Be Done? Um, both of those are exceptional. And if you want the real big Mac daddy of them all, uh, Don Reinertsen's book, Principles of Product Development Flow. Um, if you enjoy reading encyclopedias on the weekend, you'll probably like Don Reinertsen's book. <laughs> it's pretty heavy stuff. Um, and then there's probably a bunch of other uh other books as well. There's a great book. One of my absolute favorites. Let's see if I can find it quickly on my, I don't have a lot of um, print books, but I do have a couple because I just don't have anywhere to put them. I don't know where it went. I, I had it on my desk a little while ago. Now it's disappeared again. Um, it's, it's simply called Commitment and it's a graphic novel. It's really cool about um, options theory and project management. And how do we make better, less risky decisions in project management using options instead of uh, overcommitments? Okay, sorry, Church. Which the book list that we that we want? Yep. So um, I can just type these up real quick. Uh, so uh, making work visible by DeGrandis is awesome. Sorry for the typos. I think you can figure that one out. And then actionable, agile. Um, I think it's called Metrics for Predictability by Dan Vacanti. He also has a book called When Will It Be Done? And then Principles, Principles of Product Development Flow by Reinertsen. If you are serious about this, read Reinertsen's book. Just make it happen. I mean, it's going to... I, the first time I read it, I read it twice. It took me 18 months. Gra I was in graduate school while I was reading it. So I was already kind of buried with reading of really heavy reading. Um, but I still would just kind of pick away a page or two at a time, which was about all I could read of Reinhardt's book because it was so information dense. Um, you know, I'd kind of read a couple of pages and be like, okay, like I need to go think about this. <laughs> um, if you really want to understand flow and you really want to understand um, sort of the whole universe of operational management of uh, things moving le right to left, or sorry, left to right. Left to right yeah. um, that's that's the book to read. Oh, there's another one. This one's still very new. Um, I haven't even finished it yet, but I know the. Uh, I've been talking to Dan Doyer and the author um, called "Seeing Money Clearly." Uh, I think it's only uh, available on his website, which is agileagonist.com. And it is the first book that really delves into throughput accounting for knowledge work, which is the, um, comes out of theory of constraints, throughput accounting is sort of a decision-making apparatus of theory of constraints. And so uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful. He makes claims in there or reinforces claims like, 
in an entire work, like imagine a value stream, an entire value stream and how hard that might be to manage. And what if you don't have to? What if the only thing you have to manage in the entire value stream is the bottleneck? Because everything downstream from the bottleneck is gonna flow and everything upstream from the bottleneck doesn't matter. The only thing upstream from the bottleneck that matters is what's the pull signal to start. And that pull signal is generated at the constraint. When something exits the constraint, that's a pull signal to pull something else in. So the only thing you have to manage is the constraint. Whoa, what about that idea? Yeah, which was the, the, the original principle of value stream mm -hmm. coming out of the Lean Six Sigma world, right? And when we did that type, the black belt type work, yeah. that's what we focused on, right? You know, yeah. what were yeah. the waste? Let's eliminate the waste. Yep. And and I don't I don't know. I'm I'm I still can't say with 100% confidence that that's a true statement for knowledge work. This idea that you just find the constraint and do your five elevating steps um, because of the the variability that's inherent in any knowledge work yeah. system. And that variability is going to make temporary constraints kind of pop and then go away. And so it's not something like every time you see a bottle, a, a queue form does not mean that that's now your constraint. Um, it could just mean that there was a combination of local variables that created a queue temporarily and it'll resolve itself. Um, that said, over time, you can still tend to observe where do those queues form more often than not. And that can be a signal that, okay, we've got a problem there, that the throughput of that particular stage tends to um, drop below the throughput of the whole system or tends to dictate the throughput of the whole system, which would mean that those are your definitions of the constraint. All right. Yeah. Um, the Yes, Lorraine, I do, uh, let me throw, I have a little case study that I wrote up about that particular effort because it was so cool. Um, it is right here and you, I'll throw it in the chat. You're welcome to just, if I can put it in the chat, come on. Yeah, you should be able to drop it in the I chat, should, my friend. should be able to. It says I'm, it like looks like it's going to, but then it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> That all about. It. I don't know. Yep. Well, here, let me let me give, grab a link for you real quick then, because um, I also have it. I'm I'm in the literally in the middle of uh, redoing my entire website, major rebranding. So my current one is kind of a joke, <laughs> but uh, it can still. Uh, Link address. It's Can you also drop your website in here? Um, so, so I can, my existing website is interactionagility.com. Um, I'm moving away from that to uh, a 2B. The, the URL is live. It's kevin-callahan.com. That currently just goes to my sort of the about me page of, uh, of interaction agility, though. Again, it's it's gonna. We're building a new website that's that's awesome. It's it's real. I'm really excited about it. Um, so nice. Um, so uh, you know, are, are there any other questions for Kevin um, before we kind of like 
you know, wrap up, you know, share some more information um, or even comments that you may want to throw in the chat or even come mm -hmm. on camera and share, you know, what you experience. So we have about four minutes or so that I would like to create space for us to do that if we choose to. I just wanted to say thank you for the book recommendations and for the practical, the, the visuals and analogies. And it's helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. Really, really great. Yeah. So I wanted to throw something out there if I could. Sure. Hey, Kevin. So um, really appreciate your talk so far. Um, I was staring at your page and um, interestingly enough, I also uh, had like a anthropology undergrad and then have mm -hmm. kind of moved into um, consulting and tech and, and all of that. Um, so that was, I just thought that was an interesting find. Um, but uh, so one thing that I'm struggling with right now is I'm kind of newer to coaching teams who are trying to become more agile. And one project that I'm currently working on is I'm working with like an MSP IT team that's trying to like adapt Scrum um, agile practices and like what I constantly find with them is that like they're excited about Jira, they're excited about sprints, and then they're constantly, you know, kind of like taking the mindset of they're like an IT MSP team used to being extremely reactionary, always thrown under the bus mm -hmm. for everything. It's like they always want to throw more into the current sprint. And I'm like, you know, guys, it's not <laughs> how this works. Um, and they're like, yeah, but it's fine. Cause we have to do it. And then I'm constantly showing them in like the retrospectives, like we finished nothing cause we are constantly adding more work that like we're trying to address. And then like, just none of it can get done. None of our focus can be like cued <laughs> into the things that are important that we said were like at the top of the backlog and they're kind of fine with it is the problem. They're like, yeah, we understand, like we, but we just have to be like working on all these things. And it's like, but nothing is getting done. And I'm just like wondering, you know, um, like your experience with stuff like that, mm -hmm. like how do you get to sure. realize like, we're not actually achieving a goal. It's, it's great that they feel good that I'm helping them, but like, I don't feel that I am because we're not yep. getting to a point of them really increasing their velocity. Okay, so let me see if I can answer this in a minute or less. Um, this is a perfect uh, candidate for the stonecutter's parable, by the way, um, which if the first step of that of what are you doing is kind of like, I'm a tester, I'm a software developer, I'm a whatever. And the second level of that is, well, I'm a Scrum team member and we do Scrum. And it's like, cool, Scrum, you never do Scrum for its own end, you do Scrum for some other end. What is the other end, which is that third sort of level? And so the first uh, agreement that we have to be able to make is why do we exist? Do you exist? And at the base level, I believe we form scrum teams to deliver things, not to store things, not to be busy working on things, to deliver them. And that means they exit. And that, that's an agreement that that team has to make explicit together because that will be the forcing function on their next set of improvements, which is you're not actually delivering much. You're just opening a whole hell of a lot of beers 
and kind of watching them pile up on the desk and then maybe dumping them out when they go flat and warm. Like the point is not to have a lot of things in flight. The point is to have as few as kind of reasonably possible so they continue to exit. But you have to agree that we score a point by things exiting, not by things starting. And so where are, they, where are you focusing together? So that's the first question. Um, do you, can you get them to agree that their purpose is to deliver, not to store work and not to start work, to deliver work? And what happens if we start organizing? You know, are we organizing well around that delivery? If not, what does it look like if we start? So that's that I found that to be really effective. Um, I've, I've kind of honed that approach over the years. And it's just one of my go-tos now when I work with a team for the first time. Cool. Thank you. I'm willing to hang out for a little bit, Dave, by the way. If, if other people are, you can make me co a host if you want to bail. <laughs> yeah. No, what I'm going to do is like I'll close up the presentation. Okay, right? good. So we can get the recording. And then, um, and then, yeah, we can hang out, you know. Yep, good. It's, it's cool. fine. We have until 12 o'clock. So, hey, I just want to say um, it's great hanging out with you. Here's a few announcements that I'll throw in the chat that hopefully uh, people could get involved with. So here's, you know, an opportunity. If, if you want to present, you know, submit a lightning talk. Lightning talks are 10 minutes, you know, for our conferences coming up in February. Um, sh share this out with others, if you know, who wants to uh, um, go ahead and register. Um, here's some information about... Uh, my books that I've recently uh, finished, I'll drop two of them in the chat. And, and basically I'll share all this information. You know, you could get belonging and healing on amazon.com. And I also just recently finished um, Deliver Value, something that I've been working on for several years. Uh, and, and so grab some of that information if you wish to uh, learn more about some of the work that I'm doing. So yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, we we move we meet bi-monthly. So every two months we come up and we have someone that's uh who's gonna bring something super cool to our community. And so Kevin, thank you so much for, for sharing. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Lorraine. And so I'm gonna stop recording and you know, if we wanna hang out, let's just hang out. What is the importance of belonging? And why do we all need to belong somewhere? It is built into our human nature. Learn how the powerful philosophy of Ubuntu helps to deliver a simple roadmap to building positive teams and relationships, improving engagement and performance. Get your copy of Belonging and Healing, Creating Awesomeness for Yourself and Others by Dr. Dave Cornelius on Amazon.com. Let's talk about talk, it. Talk, talk, talk. Let's go deep. We all have something to share. No, no share with Dr. Dave.